Albert Einstein stood for everything that the Nazis hated. He was an intellectual, a free thinker, tolerant in many ways, and of course, a Jew. His theory of relativity was particularly odious to them, and their goal was to shame him and discredit his theory, to somehow uh, declare that German physics was superior to Jewish speculations. So they gathered a hundred Nazi scientists together in some conference. They collaborated on a book to disprove Einstein's theory. When asked about it, Einstein said, were I wrong, one professor would have been enough to refute it. It is true that when people are in error, often they turn up the volume so that the crowd cannot hear the truth, hoping that in the volume and the static, their false teaching will gain a hearing. If I were wrong, one professor would have been enough to refute the whole theory. That sounds a lot like the book of Job. Were Job wrong, one friend would have been enough to easily refute him. But they turned up the volume, and three of them have now been hammering on him for 22 chapters, according to our Bible, trying to prove that Job was suffering because of his sin. And so today we want to look at an unusual happening for a fourth guy shows up and his words are fascinating. But before we get to that, I want to share just a few things that take us up to uh, Elihu's speech, which actually begins in uh, chapter 32. A few things that Job said earlier in his speech. I wanted to go through the whole speech of Job, and I began to do it, and I ended up with over 60 verses that I wanted to talk about, and I thought, you know, that might be a bit too long. <laughs> so we're just going to show you a few things, but I just have to show you this. In one of Job's last speeches, he laments, if only I knew where to find God. That's chapter 23 and verse 3. And often in our suffering and times of darkness, that is our cry. But notice the answer that comes just a few verses later. And this is one of the key verses we've been talking about. Although you may not know where to find God, get this. He knows where to find you. He knows the way that I take. He's not in oblivion. Although God may hide himself, it appears to us, he does not distance himself. Those are two different things. Although God may not appear to respond, he is in the know. He knows exactly the way that you take. He's the one that's allowing the trial, chapter 1. He's the one that is uh, sending this difficulty for a purpose. And when he has tried me, who tries us? Who tests us? God. God never tempts you to sin. James chapter 1 is clear on that. But God does test you to grow. 
And those are two entirely different things. And so we rejoice in God's goodness when through fiery trial your test, your, your pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume, your gold to refine. That's Job 23 and verse 10. But how do I get through that time of testing? Well, in the same chapter, here's one of the most fantastic verses in all the book of Job. Job says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more important than my necessary food. I think the NIV sounds something like this. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily food. Do you view the word of God, the spiritual food of God's word, as being more important than your physical food? How many times do you eat physically every day? How many times do you eat spiritually every day? I rest my case. Dawson Trotman is the man who once said, made this vow, I will not eat food, physical food, until I first have my personal devotions. No Bible, no breakfast. <laughs> and he said, there were several days when I went without eating until I came back and found the Lord. So Job esteems the words of God's mouth as more important in the midst of trial, and that's what he's living on, although God is not speaking to him as much as he wants him to speak. Great chapter. There's sermon number one. Sermon number two is found in Job chapter 28. Turn there for a moment, and we won't read all of these. Again, wonderful, beautiful poetry as Job continues one of his, his longest sermon, actually, starts in chapter 26. But he says, verse 1, chapter 28, There's a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined, irons taken from the earth, copper smelted from ore. Men go into darkness in the deep rest, uh, recesses of the earth. And, and he, so he describes the mining process in the early part here of chapter 28. But when he comes to verse 12, he says, Yeah, man can find all these precious minerals in the earth, but where can wisdom be mined? Where can wisdom be discovered? Where can you go in the depths of the earth and dig out from the rock wisdom and understanding? And he answers the question himself at the end of the chapter. The fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. What a great way to teach how futile it is to look for wisdom anywhere else. And man has all this ability to discover almost anything in the universe, certainly on this globe, amazing discoveries. But where do you find wisdom? And the book of Proverbs says that the knowledge of the Lord, that's the beginning, that's the elementary school, that's the first step, that's the place to start. And Job says the same thing in Job 28, 28. In chapter 29, Job remembers how it used to be, how people used to come to him for counsel, how he was one of the learned men in town and at the gate, 
how people would stand in his presence and wait on his every word. Chapter 30, verse 1, but now they mock me. In fact, young men, younger than I, whose fathers I wouldn't even trusted to watch my sheepdog. Their sons are mocking me in song. Look at verse 9, chapter 30, verse 9. And now their sons mock me in song, and I have become a byword. What's a byword? It's, it's a, a way to describe a situation with a person's name that is not uh, positive. And so uh, someone that is untrue and unfaithful to his country is a Benedict Arnold, right? He's a byword. His name is synonymous with treachery and uh, being a traitor. Job's name is synonymous with someone who sinned and didn't make it right, and God is making him pay. And so teachers are using him as an object lesson. Don't be like Job. Watch out for your Jobian slip. Make sure that you don't run away from God or this is what happens. And Job had to endure all of that. Now, in chapter 31, his last statement before Elihu speaks, it's almost like a law court. He brings up different things. He says, if I would have been immoral, I should be judged for that. If I would have uh, had my ear quieted to the poor, ignore the poor, not been generous, verse 16, I should be judged for that. If I made gold my God, verse 24, if I went into idolatry, I should be judged for that. If I concealed my sin, verse 33, I should be judged for that. But I haven't done any of these things. And yet I'm suffering. And so Job ends his words by asking that God would give him a reason for the suffering. This is chapter 31 and verse 35. I sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser, who's God, write his indictment against me. It's almost like a law court. And then, mercifully, the last few words of chapter 31, the words of Job are ended. <laughs> and wow, what a long speech. But that's not the end of it. For a new guy comes in. The guy is Elihu. And he is angry. Uh, the scriptures tell us in these first few verses. Um, when, these, when Job stopped speaking. The three men stopped answering. Because Job was righteous in his own eyes. And then Elihu. Chapter 32 verse 2. Son of Barakel the Buzite. Of the family of Ram. Became very angry with Job. For Job was justifying himself rather than God. Now Elihu's going to take a different approach than the three friends. He is not going to accuse Job of sinning and therefore suffering. But he is going to accuse Job of, of saying that God is not just. And that's exactly what Job has done. And Job has spent more time defending himself than defending God. That's Elihu's point. 
By the way, when you get to the end of the book, God is going to speak. And when God speaks, he, he rebukes Job. He really criticizes the three friends, but says nothing about Elihu. Which means we need to take notice at what Elihu says. His message is so important for us today as believers who in the midst of our suffering might spend more time defending ourselves than we are bowing before the righteous plan and sovereign will of almighty God. So Elihu is angry, but he's angry about the right things. I think it was Aristotle who said, it's easy to fly into a fit of rage. Anybody can do that. But to be angry about the right thing in the right way, to the right degree, at the right time, is a skill. <laughs> that is a unique gift. But it seems as though Elihu, not perfectly, but in part, to a large degree, has got it right. So he's angry with Job for justifying himself, but he's also angry with the three friends because they found no way to refute Job, yet they what? Condemned him. They had no evidence. They had no arguments, although they marshaled a lot that didn't stand the test. And yet they still condemned him. How often we do that without having facts. Condemn other people. Like we are God. And that's why these three friends are going to be condemned in the end themselves. After these three individuals have argued. Elihu gives his case. Then God speaks. And that's when everything is answered. By the way, Elihu's speech that goes from chapter 32 to chapter 37, prepares the way for Job to hear God. Which is important for us to remember that sometimes the words of our good and godly friends help prepare the way for God to deal with us and for God to get through to us. So Job was right. He didn't sin. That is... He never said he was sinless, but he's blameless. There's not some reason for him suffering because of his sin. He was right about that. But he was wrong when he said that God had been unjust to him. And this is where you and I often miss it. We can't find a reason for God punishing us. And therefore we blame God for not being fair. Which means, God, you're not just. The words of Mark Twain uh, apply to Job, I think, very well. Job was a good man in the worst way. He was a good man, but some of the worst characteristics of that good man had come to the surface. That's true of a lot of believers. Boy, you're a solid believer in the worst way. At least today, you're acting in that worst way. And that was true of Job. By the way, it is interesting to note that Elihu is younger than all the others. And so I don't know exactly when he came to the arguments, but it was pretty early on. He had a seat on the dump heap when the debates began. And because he was young, he kept 
his mouth shut. He felt the older guy should go first. He was displaying proper etiquette as he, as he waited and listened. But he couldn't wait forever. He gave his full attention. He examined all the debate. And here, by the way, is a good assessment of all the debate that has gone on. Not one of you three friends proved your argument, proved that Job was wrong. None of you had an answer to his words. And so now Elihu is going to touch on something very vital for us to grasp. And he starts out here with this concept of God speaking to him. Basically, Elihu is going to say, the Lord has inspired me to say what I am about to say. He mentions in chapter 32 in verse 8, it is the spirit of a man, the breath of the Almighty within the man that gives him understanding. That is, God makes us in his image, gives us the ability to understand. When he gives us the breath of life and makes us like himself, we have the opportunity then to find wisdom if we seek it in God. In other words, I may be young and not have the experience that you three guys have, but I have God, and I've learned something from him. He goes on to say in that same chapter, verse 18, I'm full of words, and the Spirit compels me. Anyone who feels called of God should be full of the message of God as well as a strong passion to declare it. It was the Apostle Paul who said, woe to me if I don't preach. And Jeremiah said, it's like a fire in my bosom. I'm going to explode if I don't say something. Job, uh, or Elihu, puts it this way. He says, inside of me it's like a bottle of wine fermenting. And if I don't speak soon, the wineskins are going to burst. You get the picture. There's a passion within that must be spoken. And where does this passion come from? The Spirit of God made me, says Elihu. And it's the breath of the Almighty who gives me life. And I believe he has called me to speak. So all of that, chapter 32 and, and into chapter 33, he's just kind of preparing the way. Now he assesses Job's argument. Get this. He said, Job, you have said this, I am pure and without sin. By the way, Job never said that. That's what Zophar said about Job. But Job did say he was free from guilt. So we'll give him half credit for getting that one right. But the second part is, yet God has found fault with me, Job said. God considers me his enemy. And if you were to read through the book of Job and just glean how many times Job spoke about God being against him. God has put a target on me. He shoots his arrows at me. He is indeed my enemy. You would hear it over and over and over again. And my friend, that is clearly wrong. Is God allowing you to be tested? Yes. Is the testing hard? Unbelievable. Is God your enemy? Absolutely not. And this is the bitterness. This is the attitude that you and I fall into when things don't go our way. We began to blame God. Maybe it's subtle at first. 
But then sometimes right in your face, as Job did, we say that God is our enemy and he's not talking to me. Well, Job says, I want you to know that you are not right. And that God is greater than you think. If I were to give to you a thesis statement for Elihu's sermons, and there are four of them, and we're kind of touching on all four of them, it would be this. God is greater than you think. And the more you think how great God is, the less you'll defend yourself and accuse him of being unfair. By the way, you complain that God doesn't answer, right? You complain that he doesn't hear or answer any of man's words. But I want you to know this. God does speak, Elihu says. Now one way and then another. Though you might not perceive it, God is speaking to you. Now what he wants, perhaps, are audible words. Have you ever asked that God would just speak to you and clear up the situation? Write something on the wall like you did to Belshazzar. By the way, that was in judgment, so that's probably not a good idea. But I would love for God sometimes just to say, I'll print it out on your printer and here's what I want you to do. And basically what I'm saying is, God, you're not speaking to me. And he says, no, I am. Sometimes it's in different ways. So listen to what Elihu says. Sometimes God speaks in a dream. So this is chapter 33, verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when the night's sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in your ear, terrifying things, warning you, turning you from wrongdoing. Now, the Bible does talk about God speaking in dreams, and even in the end times, God doing it more, according to the book of Joel and also Acts chapter 2. But there are too many people talking about God speaking to them in their dreams and coming up with unbiblical things that scares me to death. But there are occasions when God can speak. I don't think it's his normal plan. His normal plan for speaking to you is right here. Remember, Job did not have the completed word of God. And many and the people in the Bible didn't have the completed canon of scripture. So there are times when God can speak. John Calvin even gives an example of this of a man who said to him one day, I had a horrible dream and uh, horrible things were happening and Calvin knew this man wasn't a Christian so he said, God is telling you that judgment is coming. In fact, this man was talking about one year from now, I'm going to die and Calvin said, listen, maybe that's God warning you to turn to him and exactly a year later that man died. So God may speak in unusual and terrible ways. But get this. Look at verse 19. God also speaks when you are chastened on a bed of pain. Is that appropriate for Job? Absolutely. Verse 19. With constant distress in your bones, so that your very being finds food repulsive and your soul loathes the choicest meal. Verse 21, your flesh wastes away to nothing and your bones once hidden stick out. That's Job. But here's the point Elihu's trying to make. God speaks in your pain. Chapter 36, verse 15. 
Those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering and speaks to them in their affliction. It was C.S. Lewis who gave to us the great book, The Problem of Pain. And C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, the good days. He speaks to us in our conscience, a little stronger. But he shouts to us in our suffering. God's megaphone is our suffering. God, man's pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world, a world that won't hear him. Wow, that's wise. How does God get the attention of so many people who have turned away from him and even get our attention? Sometimes it's through this horrible thing called suffering. And we need to pray for God to teach us through our suffering, not simply remove our suffering. If indeed God wants to teach us something in the midst of our chastening, it should be our greater goal to learn the lesson than it is to be freed of the pain. Easier said than done. Now I want you also to notice this from the writings of Job. That in the midst of pain, people shouldn't attack their maker saying, where is God? Because he is the one who gives songs in the night and teaches us more Certainly then he teaches the animals, the beasts of the field. Two things I want to take out of that verse from chapter 35. And it's this. When God is teaching us in the midst of our affliction, he wants to teach us something new and something more. So learn it. And secondly, even in the midst of the night, he gives us a song. I'd never seen this before, but when Jesus, after the Last Supper, went out to the garden to pray and then to be betrayed and then crucified, what did they do right at the end of the Last Supper? Jesus led them in a song. It was a song in the night. When they had sung a hymn, they departed. You and I need to find that song in the midst of the night. And God is gracious enough to give us strength. But then one final thing, and it's this, and this all comes, again, out of chapter 33. God does speak to us, sometimes in unusual ways with warnings, sometimes in the midst of our suffering, certainly through his word. But in chapter 33, an angel now you say, Pastor Don, you're getting weird on me again. Or verse 23, you're getting weird on me again. Well, listen to what this says. If there is an angel on the side of the sufferer as a mediator. Have you heard that word before? If you've been with us through this study, you'll know that there's been a line of thinking in chapter 9. Verse 33, where is my daysman? Where is my mediator? And then in chapter 16, 19, I have an advocate in heaven. And then we talked about in chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my redeemer lives. He is my mediator. He'll stand in my stead. And now he's talking about an angel as a mediator who is one in a thousand. Did you see that phrase? He's one in a thousand. Well, that's Jesus. 
You say, Jesus is not an angel. In the Old Testament, Jesus used to appear as the angel of the Lord multiple times. Before he came into human flesh, he would enter into this world in a theophany, or more specifically a Christophany, an Old Testament appearing of Christ. And this sounds exactly like Christ in this section of Scripture. He comes to spare us, to save us from going down to the pit, verse 24. He wants to be gracious to us. He wants to renew us. He wants to restore us and bring us into favor with God. That's exactly what Jesus does. And just like as we said back in chapter 19, Job probably didn't understand all that he was saying. Or Elihu didn't understand in this place all that he was saying. But this is a wonderful prediction and prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe, according to this verse, Elihu knew what it was to be redeemed himself. That the Lord had saved him and he had this sense of being rescued from the pit. Well, we must quickly go on. Elihu wants to clear Job. He wants to justify Job. He's not taking sides. But he's trying to speak the truth to help Job. And so he declares what his purpose is at the end of chapter 33. But now he begins to talk about the greatness of God. You don't under, Remember we said that his thesis was simply this. You don't understand how great God is. This is what you and I need to glean in the midst of our suffering. We don't know how great God is. Where do you get the audacity? Where do I get the audacity to speak against God? As though I could order him or counsel him or correct him. Far be it from God to do evil. And being unjust is sinful the almighty can do no wrong he says in chapter 34 look at this in verse 14 of chapter 34 if 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 it were God's intention to withdraw his spirit and breath all mankind would immediately perish and return to dust do you believe that this world does not but it is true Jesus holds everything in his hand. Colossians tells us he holds everything together. Were it God's intention to withdraw his spirit, everything would pulverize. Every atom of this world would separate. Talk about an explosion. You don't realize how great God is, Job. If he remains silent, if you say he doesn't speak to you, and I already established he does, Elihu said, but if you say he doesn't speak, so what? That's his prerogative. Who are you to condemn him? He's the sovereign. This sounds a lot like Paul arguing in Romans 9. If you have a case against God, remember this. He's God and you're not. And that's one of the things he wants to teach you in suffering, and you're not learning it very well. Someone wisely said, it's not God's purpose to send us comfort 
in the midst of our tribulations. It's God's purpose to make us a comforter for others. That's not always the case, but it is often the case. God wants to not make us comfortable, but to make us comforters for those who are suffering around us. Wow, that changes things. So Elihu says, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. He says it again. Job opens his mouth with empty talk, without knowledge. He multiplies his words. But there's more I can say on God's behalf, if we had the time. Chapter 36, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like God? And how does he teach you? The book of Job says, answer class in suffering, in trials. Some of his, his most effective lessons are found there. How great is God? He's beyond our understanding. The number of his years past finding out, Elihu says. You see, he's just preaching how great God is. And Job has forgotten that as he begins to blame him. And then, and this is pretty amazing, there appears to be an approaching storm in uh, the middle of, uh, of chapter 36. So chapter 36, about verse 27 he draws up the drops of water which distill as rain. And he begins to talk about rain and lightning and clouds and storms. Ver, uh, ch uh, chapter 37, he unleashes his lightning. And when you get to chapter 38 and God speaks, verse 1, God speaks to Job out of a storm. A few times in my experience when I've been preaching, a storm has taken place. And it really helps for people to listen. You know, so the rain in this building, it's happened. We had a tornado come over one time when the service was taking place. And the rain was coming down so hard. It was hard for people to hear. That makes it difficult. But I'll never forget, I was preaching about the greatness of God. And I think I was talking about his judgment. At the very moment, there was a huge crack of lightning. Wow, was that effective. And I think someone actually uh, accused me of having that planned. Well, that's what's going to happen here, and we'll see it next week. When God speaks, it's in the midst of a storm, and you talk about effect. We're going to talk about the lightning and the clouds and all of that. And it's kind of like the ways of God. He has a purpose to punish in the storm and a purpose to yield a harvest in a storm. And that's the good ways of God. So a storm is coming. But maybe this is the best way to finish. A rather brief and fast summary. In the midst of your trials, God is not punishing you for your sin. He's actually trying to protect you from sin. What do you mean? He's trying to grow you. He's trying to teach you to trust him. And if you learn to trust him, you won't sin in the future. It's preventative. It's not punitive. In other words, in the midst of this horrible suffering that I'm going through, God may have 
a wonderful lesson, as we quoted last week from Oswald Chambers. The, the glorious treasures of the darkness yield God's unbelievable benedictions, his wonderful blessings, and we'll miss it if we just try to get out of the suffering instead of asking God, teach us what you want us to learn. But it's important to remember, remember this. God is not trying, he's not your enemy. Job, you've got it all wrong. He's not unjust. He can do what he wants. He's trying to grow you and teach you and keep you from destroying yourself. If God has a purpose in my suffering, then maybe I better learn it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sing in the scriptures about the fact that you ride upon the storm and your ways are often mysterious. But in the end, the clouds break with wonderful rain. And the lightning energizes the ground with nitrogen so that it can grow things for our benefit. And so while you bring the clouds to punish at times, you also water the earth to show your love. And I pray that we will see the same thing in the trials. That your purpose is not to punish us, but to grow us. In Jesus' name, amen.